It's also special because this is our first celebration in our new facility. First time we're having an Easter celebration here in our new auditorium. Since 2013, we've been in rented facilities. Uh, This is still kind of a rented facility, but we've been in a portable situation where we've had to set up and tear down. And so we started out in the movie theaters at Newport on the Levee where we would set up and tear down. Then we moved next door, which used to be an event center, where we would set up and tear down because we would be following or preceding a wedding banquet or some sort of party. And so we had to set up and we had to tear down. And so it's a joy to be able to be here today in a place that really is our own, where we can show up in a place that's been custom built for our church family and for people to visit where we can celebrate our resurrected Savior. And we're unbelievably grateful. Uh, The Lord has always provided a place for us to worship Him, uh, but we're really, really grateful to have this particular place, uh, this particular facility, because we can just call it our home. And finally, and most importantly, it's a special Sunday because we're celebrating our resurrected King Jesus, who is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Luke chapter 24? If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, scroll in a Bible app or find it online. We're going to be looking at Luke 24. That's where we're going to spend the entirety of our sermon. Anything else, I'll just read to you. There's also sermon outlines available for you online or at the doors if you'd like to go and help yourself to one of those and follow along. But we'll be, I will call them back. Luke chapter 24 is where we'll be. But as you, uh, as you get there, let me uh, do you a favor and do us all a favor and kind of cover not where we've left off in the book of Luke. Because last week we finished Luke, 7, uh, Luke 6, rather. so you, have, you can rest assured I'm not going to cover or try to cover like what has happened between Luke 7 and Luke 23 to bring us up to speed. But what I would like to do is cover what would have happened this last week, some 2,000 plus years ago. What would have happened during Holy Week? Because as you'll see, a lot can change in a week, right? So what I'd like to do is I would like to cover with you what would have happened one week ago today. We're celebrating the resurrection today, our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. But seven days prior to that was Palm Sunday. And I'd like to cover briefly, very briefly, uh, what transpired during that time. On the Sunday before his death, Jesus' death, Jesus' and his disciples arrived in Jerusalem. But he didn't arrive as the king that he was. He arrived humbly as a servant. He slowly entered the city in which he would soon lay down his life for sinners like them, like you, and like me. We refer to that day as Palm Sunday because the crowds welcomed him by waving palm branches in the air, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We won't go there today, but this is recorded a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 19. The next day was Monday. Jesus returned with his disciples to Jerusalem after spending the night in Bethany. He arrives at the temple. He found the courts of the temple full of corrupt money changers. And so he began overturning their tables and clearing the temple, saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So quite the change from Palm Sunday to Monday, when Jesus comes riding in uh, humbly on the back of a donkey, Uh, to going to throwing down, right, to chipping over these tables and telling people, what you're doing is not good. We'll have none of this in my father's house. That's also in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. The next day is Tuesday. Jesus and his disciples go back to Jerusalem again. Back at the temple, religious leaders were upset at Jesus for establishing himself as a spiritual authority. And so they organized an ambush with the intent to place him under 
arrest. But Jesus, being Jesus, evaded their traps and then pronounced harsh judgment on the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. He says they're like those who clean the outside of a cup, but the inside is still dirty. It might look good from afar, but in reality, when you take a better look inside, you realize it's still really dirty. He says they're like whitewashed tombs, appearing beautiful on the outside, but contain nothing but dead man's bones on the inside. He calls them blind guides. He calls them snakes. He calls them brood of vipers and says to them, quote, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So this is recorded throughout the Gospels. There's actually seven statements of woe that he pronounces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and then preaches to them their condemnation of why they're hypocritical. So Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem that afternoon go east of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem. And that would become the backdrop uh, for Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem known as the Olivet Discourse. This is in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 21. Now this today was also a significant day because it's the day that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, negotiated with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus for a small amount of money. And so that's when Judas sealed that deal and said, I can do that. I can help you out. How much is it worth? And they decide that they're going to pay him a small amount of money, and Judas says, deal. We don't know a lot about the Wednesday after Palm Sunday. Not much in the Scriptures about that. Some speculate after two really exhausting days, Jesus and his disciples just kind of chilled. But on Thursday, everything takes a somber turn. First, Jesus demonstrates how believers are to love one another by washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus, our Savior King, instead of saying, instead of giving the disciples an opportunity to wash his feet, which would quite frankly be an honor, Jesus says, no, no, no. And he girds himself and he takes a cloth and he washes the feet of his disciples as if they're his honored guest. And he does this to show them how people would forever know what the people of God were like and how they're different, that they would have love one for another. Following that, Jesus shared the feast of Passover with his disciples, and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus Understanding what was going to happen, knowing in full detail, because he's omniscient. He either knows everything or he doesn't. And Jesus, as the God-man, fully God, understands what's going to happen and looks at his disciples and says, I've been looking forward to this day. I've earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you. And he knew that it would be the last time that he would celebrate Passover until it's all fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus was about to fulfill the meaning of Passover by sacrificing himself as the perfect Lamb of God, freeing us from sin and death. You see, Passover was celebrated to help the Jews remember how uh, the, the curse of death passed over them when God sent death to the firstborn among all of Egypt. But what did the Jews do? They can read about this in Exodus. They would take lamb's blood and put it on the doorposts of their house to show 
they were trusting in the Lord. And the blood was just a symbol that they trusted in the Lord. They were not going to fear death. God was going to save them. God was going to pass over them with this plague upon which he was visiting the household of Egypt. But it was also a picture of what was to come in Christ. That lamb's blood, which was a picture of the salvation that they had from that death, would point forward to the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for sinners like you and like me and take away the sin of the world. And so this Passover looked back and also looked forward. And right now Jesus was celebrating for the last time saying, this is it. I'm that guy. I'm the perfect Lamb of God. And that's why he changes Passover to become what we celebrate now. We don't celebrate Passover. We celebrate what? Communion. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We look back on Jesus' body and his blood that he sacrificed for us at Calvary. And that's why we celebrate at our church. We do it the first Sunday of most months. We celebrate that together. We're not celebrating it today, even though it's the first Sunday. But anyway, we celebrate it the first Sunday of the month so that we would look back and remember Jesus' shed blood, his broken body. Jesus leaves the upper room where they were celebrating the Last Supper, the Passover turned Lord's Supper, and went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed in agony to his Father, our Heavenly Father, to God. And just like at the Lord's Supper, where we see Jesus' deity on display, he knows what's coming, and yet he says, I'm looking forward to celebrating this with you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's one of the clearest pictures of the humanity of Christ. Where God is uh, looking down on his son, where the son of God is looking up to the father saying, if there's any way to accomplish what you want to do without me having to do this thing, can we please do that? I'm willing to do it, but if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But he says, but not my will but yours be done. Every one of us as human beings can understand that prayer. Every one of us as people who would say, if there's any way I can accomplish your will, God, in a way that wouldn't be as painful, may we please do that. But at the end of the day, it's not my will, but yours that is most important to me. And we're told that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And we're reminded that Jesus is not half God, half man, but he's fully God and fully man. It's called the hypostatic union. The fact that he's not, he's not 50-50. He's 100% God at all times, 100% man at all times. You said, that doesn't add up. I say, that's Jesus. He doesn't have to add up. He's 100% God. He's 100% man at all times. And we see that throughout the scriptures, that Jesus, even though he was tempted in all ways, he did not sin, but still identifies with and sympathizes with the struggles that we have in our life because he was and is the God-man. And so later that evening, Jewish leaders, this is still Thursday, came with Judas. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. They're like, how do we know which one's Jesus? They all kind of look alike. They've all got the beard and the hair. Like, how do we know which one's Jesus? I'll find him. The one who I go up to and kiss, that'll be Jesus. That's who you can arrest. And so Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he stood for a sham trial where they made their case against Jesus. This went through the night. 
straight through the night. And in the early morning hours, that's when Peter denied knowing his master not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crowed, as Jesus told him he was going to do. All of this you can read about in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Friday is what we know as Good Friday. It's a bizarre name for the things that have taken place on this particular day, especially for a world that looks upon that day and says, if you call what took place on that day good, you're crazy. You're actually kind of sick to look back upon what took place on that Friday to the Savior that we know and love and to call that good. This should be bad Friday. It's terrible Friday. It's a horrible, horrible day. But we Christians know what took place as a result of what Jesus did. We know what he did for us. Christ's journey turned treacherous and acutely painful in these final hours leading to his death when Jesus has not slept a wink since he was arrested. According to Scripture, Judas Iscariot, the disciple who had betrayed Jesus, was overcome not with godly sorrow but with worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 says, For the sorrow, uh, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And the scriptures tell us that Judas Iscariot was sorrowful for what he did, but not with a godly sorrow, but with a worldly sorrow. And it did produce death, literal death. Judas hung himself and killed himself. Meanwhile, Jesus was falsely accused, then condemned, then mocked, then beaten, then abandoned, and all before 9 a.m., He was sentenced to death by crucifixion, a method of capital punishment that was one of the most horrible ways to die. And before Christ was led away, soldiers spit on him, tormented him, mocked him, and flogged him. And so the suffering that Jesus underwent even before he died on the cross for sinners like you and like me is almost unfathomable. Jesus was flogged, which means he was tied to a post in all likelihood with his skin uh, stretched out. And then a Roman official known as a lictor, which is an an expert basically in human torture. The Romans were experts in human torture, knowing just how to take somebody close to death but then bring them back. And they would have taken a cat of nine tails, which was a whip, was actually a rather short whip with a handle with nine strands of leather, and at the end there'd be little knots tied where they would put things like pebbles or rocks or wood or glass so that the whips would really tear at the flesh, that it would catch in the flesh and then move out and then rip out. And they were told, they were trained to alternate between the top of the back, the lower back, the buttocks, the thighs, the legs, the thighs, the buttocks, the lower back, the top of the back, blow after bloody blow where our precious Savior's skin would hang from him like ribbons. There's reports of people after flogging that their kidneys were exposed. Pools of blood collecting underneath the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then they cut him down. But he doesn't go to Calvary yet. The fun is only just beginning for the Roman soldiers because now they have a party. And the party has a theme. And the theme is Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. 
Oh, Jesus. High and mighty majesty. Oh, King Jesus. Every Come. Oh, high and mighty majesty. Every king that's worth his salt needs a, needs a robe. Let's, get, let's bring that robe. Let's, let's get a, a blanket of sorts, most likely made of wool. Let's put that on top of Jesus and his exposed, his exposed flesh with exposed nerve endings. Let's put a wool blanket on him, high and mighty majesty. Any king, if you're a king, you need a, you need a crown. Here's a crown that we fashioned for you made of thorns. Let's let's. Put that on the head of Jesus. Oh, hail, mighty King Jesus. You're a king. You need a, you need a scepter. Every king has a scepter. Here, we'll get, this, we'll get this rod. We'll give it to him. And he'll, he'll take this. Here, here, here's your scepter, which always kind of strikes me as one of the most crucial moments in all of that because he was beaten. They put a blanket on him. They put a crown of thorns on him. A scepter he had to what? Take. And so he willingly takes this rod. He's willingly shamed. He doesn't call down from heaven fire and have them all Annihilated. He doesn't call down from heaven lightning and watch them all struck. He doesn't look at them with his eyes and have fire or flaming darts come out with them. To, I mean, he, the, all the things he could do. He takes this mock scepter. And then they take it from him and they beat him on top of the head with it. Pushing the crown of thorns into him. I mean, the torch and all of this is, this isn't even... The form of capital punishment he's been sentenced to. This is just, this is just having a good time at the expense of Jesus. It's a party with a theme. Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Then Jesus carried his own cross to Calvary, where again he was mocked and insulted as Roman soldiers nailed him to the wooden cross. The scriptures give us seven recorded sayings of Jesus on the cross. There could have been more, but there's only recorded seven. Today I'll simply highlight his first and his last. His first words after being mocked, after being beaten, after being spit upon, after being nailed to a cross, after people were making fun of the fact that he was the king of the Jews, when he really was the king of the Jews, his first words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Around 3 p.m. that day, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. By six o'clock Friday evening, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body down from the cross and laid it in a tomb. You could read about this in Luke chapters 22 and 23. On Saturday, 
Jesus laid in the tomb, dead. The tomb had been sealed shut and guards were placed outside of it. Since the Pharisees, the fact that Jesus was dead was not good enough, the Pharisees were also concerned that Jesus' followers would steal Jesus' dead body and claim he had risen from the grave. And so they had, this, they had the tomb sealed shut and placed guards to guard it. Saturday being the last day of the week was the Sabbath, and so Jesus' followers observed the Sabbath and rested, which brings us to our text today in Luke 24. And our first point. Don't make the mistake of assuming Jesus was just like us, because he's not. Don't make the mistake of assuming Jesus was just like us because he is not. Luke 24, beginning in verse 1, says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, that verse tells us some things about these women. Uh, First of all, it tells us that they love Jesus very, very much that they would want to pay their respects. What they want to do is not rude, it's not wrong, it's not bad, it's very good, it's very kind, that they would say, let's, we weren't able to anoint the body yesterday because it's the Sabbath, let's go, let's go on Sunday, we'll go and we'll anoint Jesus' body. We love him, we miss him, this is how we pay our respects. But it also tells you something else. It tells you that these women expected Jesus to kind of be just like them, like any other deceased friend or family member who would be in a tomb after you place them in a tomb. Now, I think sometimes we, who know the end of the story, we can sometimes read the New Testament kind of arrogantly here in the 21st century, be like, (laughs) if they'd only believed Jesus, they wouldn't have gone to the tomb. And it's like, bro, how many times have you gone to the tomb, gone to a cemetery to pay your respect to somebody and been like, well, lo and behold, he's not here. Like, never. They're just doing their thing. You're like, but he said he would rise. And I just look at you and say, but that's really confusing. They're probably like, he said he'd rise from the dead, but nobody does that. So I'm pretty sure he meant something else. Let's anoint the body. We miss Jesus. He's dead. But verse 2 says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So this sealed stone had been rolled away, a stone too large for any person to roll away. And then when they went inside, Jesus was not there. See, if you treat Jesus like one of us, you'll look back on his life and treat him like a great dead guy, someone who lived an unbelievable life but is now gone. Perhaps we can admire him, learn from him, even attempt to be like him. But at the end of the day, day he's gone. He's, his life is over. That's essentially what these women were doing, looking to treat Jesus like any other person that they had known had died. They were expecting a dead man in a grave. It revealed their unbelief that I think we can understand because they were going to treat Jesus like anyone else. No expectation that he would be alive because they watched him die. But listen to me. Jesus was not like us. He was not like us. I think a lot of times there could be a lot of uh, time and attention and teaching and ink Motivated towards letting people know how Jesus is just like you. How Jesus can identify with you. How Jesus is really, you have to understand the humanity of Christ. I do want to make sure that we understand the humanity of Christ. But not at the expense of the deity of Christ. And so Jesus is not just like us. He is altogether different. First of all, Jesus' life was not like ours because he never sinned. 
1 Peter 2, verse 22 says this. He, speaking of Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In fact, when he was reviled, like we heard about earlier, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' life was not like ours because he never sinned. He never sinned in thought. He never sinned in word. He never sinned in deed. He lived an absolutely perfect life, even though the Scriptures tell us he was tempted in all ways. It doesn't like he walked through life and didn't experience all the difficulties that you and I experience. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he was tempted in all ways, yet did not sin. That makes him very different from you and me. But not only was his life not like ours, his death was not like ours because he paid for our sins. Earlier I mentioned that Jesus uh, was not like others because he paid for our sins. Uh, That he carried his cross to Calvary where Roman soldiers nailed him to a wooden cross. If I may be so bold to say, the fact that he went through all of that pain, all of that agony, all of that torture, all of that flogging, is quite frankly all your fault. And all my fault. And you say, I wasn't even there. I wasn't even born. I wasn't even conceived. I wasn't even thought of. And that's where you're wrong. You actually were very much thought of by Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for sinners like you and like me. You see, Adam and Eve were sinners by choice, but not sinners by nature. They were not created with a sin nature, but they chose to sin, and therefore they were sinners by choice. And everyone flowing out of them, everyone after them, are like you and like me, sinners by nature and therefore sinners by choice. And so since we enter this world with this sinful nature, we are more prone to sin than we're prone to not sin. Uh, Our nature, our very nature just starts as having, starting out life just thinking about number one. That's why you've never had to teach your children to do the bad things that they do, because they do it what? Naturally, because they're sinners by nature. Nature. That's why you look out for yourself more than you look out for others. That's why in order to learn to be selfless, it has to be learned. In order to learn to serve Jesus, it has to be learned. It does not come naturally to us because we are sinners by nature and therefore sinners by choice. And that's why Jesus' death on the cross, all the pain, all the agony, when you think, how could they have done that? They only carried out what you and I would have done had we been there. He paid the price on the cross for sinners like you and like me because there was a price that needed to be paid. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. Point number one, don't make the mistake of assuming Jesus was just like us because he's not. But There's a second point. Don't make the mistake of looking for life where it can't be found. Looking for life where it can't be found. Luke 24, verses 4 and following. While they were perplexed about this, (laughs) to say the least, right? Showing up in a grave, seeing the grave has been 
The gravestone has been rolled away, walking into the grave, which I would say is creepy to begin with, walking into the grave, not seeing Jesus there, whom they expected to see Jesus there. They were perplexed. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. I'm dying to know what they look like. But apparently it was dazzling. In dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a really bizarre question. Because they could have looked back at them and said, I'm not, I'm not seeking the, I'm seeking the dead among the dead. This is a cemetery. I'm not here to seek the living among the dead. Like if any of you said, have you seen Joe? You say, I haven't seen Joe. I'm not sure where Joe is. Has anybody ever said, have you checked the cemetery? It's just not a thing, right? Might be at work. He might be in the car. I'm not sure. Maybe he ran out to the store. He might be hanging out with the kids. He might, have, he might be engaging in his hobby. No one's ever said, have you checked the cemetery? And they go, oh, I didn't check the cemetery. I'll check the... Joe! Nobody looks for Joe in the cemetery. Why? Because Joe is alive. And you don't look for the living among the dead. But these women are like, I'm not looking for the living among the dead. I'm looking for the dead among the dead. But I think we do this more than we realize. We look for life when it can't be found. We look for hope where it can't be found. And if it's found, it's temporary at best. It's not lasting life or hope or joy. I'd venture to say that every one of us could talk about a time in our life when we sought what we thought would be life-giving. And it might be, even for a for a season, but ultimately it has a shelf life. Ultimately it runs out. Ultimately, in some ways, it disappoints. Sometimes people do this by really doing their best to be diligent at their task that is set before them, really trying to get everything just right by doing everything exactly how they're supposed to do it because they want to do a good job. Dot every I, cross every T. For some, that's very life-giving to them. Some people take great joy in doing good to help someone else, to give of themselves to make sure that they can lift somebody else up. That's life-giving to them. Some people feel good about accomplishing or achieving a lot in their life for the glory of God. There's, there's nothing wrong with these things. Some people take time away to contemplate deeper things in, in life and how they can perhaps become more of a healthy individual, how they can change, how they can grow. Perhaps you're a lifelong student. You're a learner. I'm not saying you're a student and you're like, I feel like a lifelong student. No, I just mean like you like to advance in knowledge. You like taking the deep dive. You, like enjoy, you enjoy learning new things. That's great. That's how God made you. Maybe it's a friendship or a, a, a deep relationship with someone who is loyal and you're, as, you're loyal to them. You're faithful. You're true. Maybe you're the type of person who enjoys seeing the good in life. You look at the big picture and the the bright side of things, you always see a glass is half full when everybody else tries to tell you it's half empty. Maybe you're really one for change. You don't want to settle for the status quo. You don't want to just stick it to the man for the sake of sticking it to the man, but you want to swim upstream to try to make things better. Maybe you want to bring about peace or equity or justice for others in the world around us. Friends, we could go on and on. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but at the end of the day, Here's the problem. Your sin remains. My sin remains. And if you're looking to anything or any person for life, you're looking for life in all the wrong places. And I stand before you today to ask you to consider this. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not there. 
It's an unbelievably confusing question to the women who, like I said, could say, we're not seeking the living among the dead. We're seeking the dead among the dead. But these men, fully confident in all their bedazzled apparel, stand before them and say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. Without a a doubt in the world, remembering that Jesus Christ said he would rise. And ask them with all this confidence, why would you come here? He's alive. Right? It's like if I work for a cemetery and you go there looking for Joe. You're like, have you seen Joe? I'm like, why would Joe be here? He's alive. If he don't work here, he ain't going to be here. Why would you seek the living among the dead? Look back at verse 6. They say, he is not here, but has risen. He's not here. He's risen from the grave. Easter turns everything on its head in the most glorious way. The women expecting to find dead Jesus found no Jesus because he's not dead anymore. He had risen. He's alive Which brings us to our final point. Even though Jesus is not like us, his resurrection enables us to be like him in having victory over the grave. Luke 24, verses 6 and following. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Verses 6 through 9 really sum up what we're here to do today. Take a look at it again with me. Verse 6, he is risen. Verse 7 says, Jesus had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse 8, which I find astonishing, the whole verse is just dedicated to these words, and they remembered his words. The whole verse, they remembered his words. And verse 9 says, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. What about you? Maybe you're more like these women than you realize. The women showed up at the cemetery expecting to do something, expecting to see something, but were presented with something else. Or I might even say were confronted with something else. Maybe you showed up here today, probably not wanting to anoint the dead body, hopefully. That would be really strange. But maybe you showed up here today expecting to go to a church service, sing a few songs, or watch others sing a few songs, hear a message and go home and enjoy your peeps, the best of which you will put on a shelf and let them age a bit because aged peeps are awesome. But instead, you're being presented with something different. You're being confronted with something different. 
you're being confronted with the reality of the gospel. Gospel is good news. But it's only good news if you understand the reality of the bad news. The bad news that, we said this before, you and me, we're sinners by nature and therefore sinners by what? Choice. And that your sin separates you from a holy and righteous God and there's nothing you can do about it. And that you are hell-bound and hell-deserving. It's where you will go if you die. But God, in his infinite mercy and love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, only to die on a cross to suffer the shame and the condemnation that he doesn't deserve, but that you deserve and that I deserve. The guilt that, he, that we have, he has taken upon him so that by his wounds we might be healed. And then after he died on that cross, God the Father was satisfied. He was satisfied. It's not that he looks down and he says, okay, you know what? I'm just going to let Dan go. It's not a big deal. I'm going to give him heaven. No, no, no. It's that the people of God owe God a debt. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that as Jesus hung on that cross, as he suffered and as he died, the, the, the heavenly Father, the holy Father God, who is angry with the wicked every day, poured out his wrath upon his son, blow after bloody blow, so that Jesus Christ would absorb the anger that God has for sinners like you and like me. And so when God thinks about Dan, he says, Dan owes me nothing. His debt's been paid in full. And when God thinks about Will, he thinks, oh, I'm, I've got nothing against Will. His debt's been paid in full. Julie's debt's been paid in full. Jennifer's debt's been paid in full. Faith and Matt and Jonathan and Jose, their debt's been paid in full. And so Jesus was paying the debt on our behalf and God was satisfied. Now happy to welcome us into his kingdom, not because he just said, oh, shucks. No, because it really was made right. But it's more than that. Because if, if you ask me, I would say uh, worm food and rotting in a grave is an upgrade from burning in the lake of fire known as hell. Right? Like, we could burn consciously, being the hell-bound and hell-deserving sinners that we are, or perhaps we would just be, our debt would be paid, and now we just wouldn't burn, and now we just kind of rot in the the wonderful circle of life. But it's more than that. Mercy is not getting the sin, not getting the penalty that we deserve, but because Jesus rose from the grave, we're now given the gift of eternal life. And so Jesus purchased my salvation, and then on top of that, gave me the gift of eternal life so that when I die, I will be like him. My death is a means of passing from this life to the next, and the next is so much greater because it's without any sin. That's the glorious good news. That's the good news of the gospel, the bad news of how we are without Christ and the good news of what we, we can and have been given because of 
Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's a lot of exclusive language. He's not saying, I'm one of the ways. You should give me a shot. I'm a pretty good way. kind of like my way. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe you should up here like those women showing up at the grave, expecting one thing, but perhaps God had something entirely different for you. Perhaps God had the message of salvation for you to know, for you to understand, and for you to embrace. Perhaps you would understand the good news, and today would literally be the first day that you actually celebrated Easter personally because you know that Jesus Christ died on a cross for a sinner like you. John 5.25, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This room is full of people who have heard the good news of the gospel, who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, And have now been made alive. And we live because he lives. We live because he died on the cross for us. It's our hope and prayer that this message of salvation would be one that you would hear and you would understand if you're not a believer. That this good news of why we celebrate Easter, why we rejoice in a resurrected Savior, would be something that you would contemplate, that you would wrestle with, that this might be the reason God brought you here today and that this might be the day of your salvation because you would say, I believe, I believe, I believe that that's what Jesus did, that he died on the cross. I believe that God is no longer angry at me because he took out his anger on his son and it's done. He's not continually re-sacrificing. He did it once, paid in full, It is finished. The debt has been paid. And because the debt's been paid, I get to live eternally with Christ. It's our hope and our prayer that the good news of the gospel would be confronting you in your heart and your mind and that you might say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do my best to live a life that is pleasing to him and find out what that's all about. But I really believe that Jesus Christ died for me. I really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And I really believe because he did that, I will live beyond the grave as well. Because he's not dead. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you full of joy, full of hope, full of confidence, not because of our good deeds, not because of our church attendance, not because of our religious involvement, but because of what your son has done on behalf of us as sinners. Lord, we rejoice in our resurrected Savior because he is alive and ruling and reigning and coming again, to which we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
But Lord, we pray that you would move in the hearts and minds of your people this day. That those of us who know you would be stirred to rejoice and stirred to worship you anew. That you would, even as the psalmist David prayed, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. But we pray, Lord, would you, for your glory today, draw men and women, boys and girls, young and old, unto yourself. Give them the gift of salvation, the gift of faith, to believe on you for the most important thing in their life, the salvation of their soul. Do that this day, Lord, not chiefly for their sake, but do it for your glory. Would you save souls? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.